Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. There's something about creative types that make them different than the rest of us. If you've ever spent any kind of time with any kind of artist, you'll know exactly what I mean. They're just, you know, different, you know? That's not any kind of judgment. It's just an honest observation. They look at the universe differently. They feel things in ways we don't or can't and interpret life in interesting ways. That's what makes them artists, and it's why they're so important to the rest of us. Sometimes, though, some of them will, well, lose the plot. They're so wrapped up in their bubbles that they start behaving weird, even for them. Maybe it's a mental health issue. Maybe it has to do with drugs or alcohol. Maybe they've just fallen in with a bad crowd, the kind that encourages bad, self-destructive behavior. Some are able to rebound, straighten out, and otherwise save themselves and those around them from any further grief. Other times, not so much. These are stories of musicians who lost it. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I think we've all heard stories about crazy rock stars. You know, Ozzy biting the head off a bat, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys retreating to a piano he had set up in a sandbox in his living room so he could feel the sand between his toes while he composed, producer Phil Spector and his love of gunplay. And uh, do we really have to go into Michael Jackson? No, I didn't think so. This is the theme I want to explore a little further with this show. The purpose is not to gawk or make fun of these people, but to try to understand why they went down these roads and what happened to them when they did. Two things before we begin. First, we're going to focus on the world of alt-rock because, well, that's what we do in this program. Second, we'll move through these case studies in, I guess, more or less chronological order. And first up is Iggy Pop. Now, let's get this straight off the top. Iggy is a really smart guy even though his early years were marked by weird, and let's face it, psychotic behavior. And he's now enjoying a life as an elder statesman of rock and the godfather of punk. But back in the day, Iggy was odd, extremely odd. He enjoyed being weird for weird's sake. He liked strange haircuts, and he liked wearing these big baggy overalls. And every once in a while, Detroit cops would stop him on the street thinking that he was an escaped mental patient or something. That's true. Some of his buddies thought he was perfect to be the frontman for their new band. And on October 31st, 1967, Iggy and the Psychedelic Stooges made their debut in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They were loud, spontaneous, sloppy, fuzzy, arrogant, violent, angry, and above all, powerful. The Psychedelic Stooges soon became just the Stooges. And here begins the legend of Iggy Pop. Iggy got weirder and weirder and weirder whenever the band played live. And it's important to put this into context. Some of what Iggy did would still get him busted today. So try to imagine the effect his antics had in 1967 and 1968 when the whole peace and love hippie thing was at its height. Before a show, Iggy would take several hits of acid, a few grams of crank, 
and as much pot as he could smoke. He would wear dresses and maternity clothes on stage. From there, he would strip down to sometimes nothing at all. He'd smear his body with peanut butter and raw meat. He'd carve up his chest using a broken bottle or mutilate himself with a steak knife, drawing long, bleeding, open wounds. Sometimes he'd get Stooges guitarist Rob Ashton to whip him. Whip him with a real leather bullwhip. He'd smash himself in the head with the microphone. And he wasn't afraid of physically attacking members of the audience. So no wonder Iggy kept getting arrested for indecent exposure. And no wonder the Stooges often left the stage slick with blood. And the Stooges' music was as in-your-face as Iggy. It was raw and sloppy and high-energy rock and roll, unlike anything else being made out there at that time. And it was every bit as punk as some of the indie stuff that we hear today. Here's a radio commercial for Iggy and the Stooges from 1973. beginning, there was Iggy Stooge. Then there was Alice. I want to get out of here. And then there was David. Ground control to Major Tom. But the most bizarre of this incredible trio has always been, and remains, Iggy. Iggy and the Stooges, some of the most bizarre performers in rock music today, return to St. Louis tomorrow night at the visually and acoustically perfect American Theater. Iggy and the Stooges at the American Theater tomorrow night for two shows at 7.30 and 11.30 p.m. Reserved seats are only three, $3.50 and $4. Tickets may be purchased at Orange Julius, Northwest Plaza, Spectrum, Music Village, Glad Rags, and Mardi Gras Records. A contemporary production. The Stooges recorded three major label albums between August of 1969 and May of 1973, with the lineup shifting almost monthly. And, of course, it didn't help that Iggy was totally off the deep end. He spent $100,000 of his record company advance on a suite at the Beverly Hills Hotel. He had a huge coke and heroin habit that needed to be fed. Uh, and PCP, and uh, at speed, and downers like Quaaludes, and lots of alcohol. He was arrested a number of times, charged with impersonating a female, which was apparently a crime back then, uh, taking an axe to a Mercedes owned by a wealthy one-night stand, which evidently didn't work out so well. And then in 1974, after a particularly brutal confrontation with a Detroit biker gang, Iggy played a gig at the Michigan Palace, where he demanded that these bikers come up on stage and beat him to a pulp. Please do this. I'm asking you. Some of his friends believed that Iggy wanted to die on stage. Meanwhile, the audience bombed the stage that night with beer bottles. When the Stooges finally blew apart, Iggy had nowhere to go but a psychiatric hospital in Los Angeles. He was a babbling, strung-out freak, prone to blackouts and random acts of violence. After a while, he disappeared, and the cops found him in a heap under the counter of a hamburger joint. And that's when they gave him a choice. Jail? or a stint in the mental unit. And honestly, no one cared. No one came to visit, except Iggy's new BFF, David Bowie. Bowie had admired Iggy's energy for years, and these visits cemented a friendship that would last for decades. Bowie was the one who convinced Iggy that he didn't need to kill himself. Although, at the time, Bowie was hardly one to talk. He had lost the plot, too. Lost in a world of alcohol and heroin and truckloads and truckloads of cocaine. 
Bowie became paranoid and was behaving bizarrely, even for a pansexual rock star apparently from space. He was flirting with Nazi imagery, collecting various bits of Nazi memorabilia. He was into the occult. Bowie was obsessed with the weirdo mystic Aleister Crowley, the Kabbalah, the myths of King Arthur and real-life people who claimed to be warlocks. At the depths of his addictions, he became a recluse in an L.A. mansion where he drew pentagrams on the wall designed to call forth demons. Yeah, this is all Bowie. For a while, he existed on a diet of nothing but raw peppers and milk. His weight dropped to 86 pounds. Afraid that witches were looking to steal his precious bodily fluids, he kept his urine in bottles in the fridge. And when he went out on tour, he carried a telescope with him so he could observe the skies for the alien mothership that was coming to take him away. Yeah, this is, this is weird stuff. A lot of this was influenced by the fact that paranoid schizophrenia really does run in David Bowie's family. His elder half-brother Terry suffered from schizophrenia. He spent much of his later life committed in an institution. And then one day in 1985, Terry escaped and lay down in front of an oncoming train. Bowie felt what he called the nuttiness. No wonder he invented a character about a man who had lost his mind. Aladdin Sane. Aladdin Sane? And that album from 1973 features this song, which is partly about his semi-crazy friend, Biggie Pop. The good news about both David Bowie and Iggy Pop is that they found each other and helped each other. They escaped to West Berlin to straighten things out, which they did, eventually. And while there were relapses, Iggy especially, both survived the craziest years of their lives thanks to each other. From Bowie, we can segue into Lou Reed, a friend of his for years. Lou never really exactly lost it. Instead, I guess we can say that he was consistent in his eccentricities. He was an awful interview. Sometimes he'd send a roadie to the interview in his place. He engaged in a series of um, non-traditional relationships. He was physically abusive to his first wife. He was involved for years with a half-Mexican, half-Indian, transvestite, transsexual named Tommy Slash Ray. She died sometime in the mid-90s. Oh, and uh, Lou Reed once punched David Bowie in the face. Apparently, they were out at dinner. This is in London in 1987. And Lou asked Bowie if he would produce his next album. And Bowie agreed on the condition that Lou get sober and clean up. And that's when Lou got up and smacked Bowie in the face, screaming, don't you ever say that to me. Needless to say, the dinner broke up. And then there's the whole metal machine music thing. In 1975, Lou Reed decided he wanted out of his contract with RCA Records with still a couple of albums to go. So he delivered a double record that sounded like this. Okay, that's that's it. That's that's the whole album. 64 minutes of that, that feedback. RCA hated the record. Of course, what did you expect? But they released it anyway as a screw you back at Lou. But the album somehow remained dear to Lou's heart. He actually released a remastered version in 2011. Okay, now, can we, can we stop this, please? Yes, thank you. 
If you ever want to clear people out of a party at the end of the night, just put on metal machine music. It, it'll work every time. One more quirk about Lou. He was a massive, massive practitioner of Tai Chi. He took his instructor on the road with him and even released an album full of electronic meditation music. It has been reported that Lou was practicing his Tai Chi moves right into the hour of his death from liver disease caused by decades of drinking. He was 71. Take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls say, do, 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 do. Oh, we are just getting started. More stories of musicians who lost it in just a sec. This is an episode entitled Musicians Who Lost It, and it's just like it sounds. Artists from the history of alt-rock who have, for whatever reason, just gone off the rails. When the Sex Pistols blew up in 1978, manager Malcolm McLaren went on the hunt for new clients, and that's when he found Stuart Goddard, the former bass player in a London-based band called Bazooka Joe. Now, Stuart was a good-looking guy, but he did have a history of mental health issues. While in university, he developed anorexia, a condition that led to a suicide attempt and a three-month stay in a psychiatric hospital. It was then that he renamed himself Adam Ant and went back to music. After a bit of a staggering start, his band, Adam and the Ants, started having hits in post-punk Britain. They played Live Aid, Adam got some acting gigs, and all seemed fine. But things turned again in 2002 when he threw a car alternator. Yes, a car alternator through a pub window and then trying to hold off the mob that chased him with a World War II starter's pistol. He was fined and ordered back into psychiatric care. A year later, he was arrested after he tried to smash into a neighbor's flat armed with a shovel. Cops found him on the floor of a basement cafe with his pants pulled down. He was curled up trying to sleep. And that resulted in six more months of psychiatric care. By this time, the British media was following the story very closely. There was even a TV special called The Madness of Prince Charming, in which it was revealed that Adam was bipolar, a condition that was undiagnosed until 1995. But even then, with treatment and medication, this severely hampered his career. Here's a quote. If you look at the symptoms of bipolar disorder, in all seriousness, the actual alarm signals are practically my job description. Promiscuity, spending money lavishly, and wearing weird clothes. These issues would revisit him again in 2010, when he again was admitted to a psych ward. But this time, it was at his own volition. And since then, he seems to have found a good place. He's used his plight to raise awareness about mental health issues in the UK. Here's Adam and the Ants at the height of what was known as Antmania in the early 1980s. All right, we now have to talk about Morrissey. People have been wondering about his thinking for decades. Even the most devoted fans have heard him say something and thought, dude, what's, what's wrong with you? Yes, he's a contrarian and a provocateur. Yes, he likes to stir up trouble and controversy. Uh, but still, l- let me give you a couple of examples beyond his being just a militant vegetarian and someone who hates journalists. First of all, there's his occasional flirting with the far right. He's often shown disturbing sympathies with some of the racist filth spewed by a British organization called the National Front. 
This flirtation goes back years, as Morrissey has spoken out against immigration and multiculturalism. Here are a couple of quotes. He once declared early on that, I don't hate Pakistanis, but I dislike them immensely. In the 1990s, members of the National Front often met up at Morrissey gigs. They took his draping himself in the Union Jack on stage as tacit acknowledgement that England was for the English. In fact, he has a song with that title, England for the English. Mix that with a song called This Is Not Your Country, and the fact that in 1993 he released a song called National Front Disco. Well, you kind of get it. I have more. In 2010, he publicly said, the Chinese are a subspecies. Huh. He was allegedly speaking about the Chinese diet, which involved a lot of meat, but others heard something much more insidious. He made a claim that all acid attacks in Britain were by people of color and immigrants. These days, Morrissey seems to support UKIP, a right-wing political party in the UK, also the right-wing British political party for Britain, a group that has anti-Islamic policies, and also the self-proclaimed anti-Islam party, Liberty GB. Does, does he really believe what they say, or is he just being provocative? Well, most will say the former. Oh, and it goes on. He attacked Harvey Weinstein's accusers. He wrote a song about decapitating Margaret Thatcher. He says a black pop conspiracy is hindering the popularity of white artists and keeping them out of the upper reaches of the charts. When a far-right terrorist shot 77 people in Norway in the summer of 2011, he compared what happened to those people to the meat industry. So, Mazer, dude, you've lost it. His first solo album was called Viva Hate. It came out in 1988, and on that album is a track called Suedehead. And in case you didn't know, a suedehead is someone who's part of an offshoot of skinhead culture back in the early 1970s. Next on our list of alt-rock musicians who lost the plot is Sinead O'Connor. As with Morrissey, we first thought that she was just being an artist, an artiste, an activist, someone with something to protest. But then she started to misjudge things. In the early 90s, when she was at her commercial peak, she refused to play a show in New Jersey if the Star Spangled Banner was going to be played before she went on. Next came the infamous appearance on Saturday Night Live in October 1992, when she tore up a picture of the Pope as a statement against the Catholic Church and its cover-up of sexual abuse. That didn't go over well. Her behavior became more erratic as time went on. In January 1995, she called into a late-night TV show in Ireland during a discussion on sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and then showed up at the studio. She was ordained in a Catholic sect as a priest, as a female priest, and for a while wanted to be called Mother Bernadette Mary. She's written three different popes, asking them to excommunicate her. In November 2015, she posted some worrisome things on Facebook, saying that she just deliberately overdosed in a hotel somewhere in Ireland. Good news is that she was eventually found safe. Then in 2016, she went missing in Chicago, and that resulted in a police search. Those close to her were very, very afraid of what she might do to herself. At one point, she accepted the fact that she was bipolar, and then refuted that after she sought some second opinions. Sinead later said that the hormonal storm that she experienced after a hysterectomy really messed her up, and then she went into rehab to help with her 30-year addiction to cannabis. 
In 2017, she legally changed her name to Magda David so she could be free of parental curses. That's a quote uh, by which I guess she meant her birth name. And then in October 2018, she converted to Islam. She now goes by the name Shuhada Sadaquat. She's been married four times, the fourth of which only lasted a week. Great talent. Very, very troubled, though. This is from her 1987 debut album, The Lion and the Cobra. The phoenix from the Sinead O'Connor and Troy from 1987. She was just 19 when she recorded that. Back with more stories of artists who have lost it in just a sec. This is the first half of a two-part program documenting the travails, distress, and suffering experienced by alt-rock artists through the years. And we're doing this chronologically. We're up to where we have to talk about Courtney Love. She is one of the most infamous artists, musicians, and celebrities of the last three decades. And where to begin? Uh, well, maybe when she was a kid, her parents were hippies. Dad was a road manager for the Grateful Dead and allegedly dosed her with LSD. She was in therapy by the time she was two. She moved from place to place as a kid. She spent time living with her psychotherapist mom in a renovated chicken coop on a farm in New Zealand. When it came to school, she kept getting kicked out. By 15 or 16, she was working as a stripper, where part of the act featured her cutting herself with a razor. And then somewhere along the line, she became convinced that her grandfather was Marlon Brando. There was a very short marriage to a transvestite punk musician named James Moreland. He says that uh, she once set their bed on fire on purpose. She allegedly did heroin in the early stages of her pregnancy with Frances Bean. She once claimed that Dave Grohl tried to seduce her daughter Frances just so that he could be, quote, closer to Kurt. Courtney has been caught in various air rage situations, resulting in being hauled into court. There have been numerous lawsuits involving libelous and slanderous comments. She claims that Kurt's ashes were stolen from her home in L.A. Another time, she offered a writer an opportunity to snort some of those same ashes. And in 2004, a New York rapper named Kofi Asar briefly became famous when he saw Courtney flashing a crowd. He had his picture taken as Courtney pretended to breastfeed him. Well, there's more. In fact, there's so much more that we could probably fill three hours with tales of these escapades and bad decisions and drug abuse. However, to be fair, all that seems to be behind Courtney. A number of years ago, I was called in as a witness for the prosecution in a libel trial. So yes, I was called to testify against the widow Cobain in Los Angeles. Long, long story. But in the end, the charges were dismissed and I got to know her and I've been to her house. And for all her eccentricities, I really, really like her. Uh, but she is certainly one of a kind. We'll continue our look at alt-rockers who lost the plot next time, and that will include Scott Weiland, Al Jorgensen of Ministry, Wes Scantlin of Puddle of Mud, and a whole bunch more. And again, I want to emphasize that we are not poking fun at any of these people. These are real issues, real problems, real distress here. And where possible and appropriate, we want to be as sympathetic and as understanding as we possibly can. Until next time, you can binge your way through hundreds of past programs as podcasts. They're available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, basically everywhere that offers on-demand audio. Please rate and recommend if you can. There's nothing like good old word of mouth. 
My website is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I update it all the time with music news and information. There's a free newsletter that goes along with it. And don't be afraid to reach out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email, which is alan at alancross.ca. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 